Welcome to the ICU podcast. I'm your host, Callie, a registered dietitian living with interstitial cystitis. Each week, I'll be diving into hot topics in the IC world, giving others a platform to share their story, and I may even reveal some of my favorite nutrition tips. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now, let's get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of ICU. Today, we are going to talk about a condition that can cross over with IC. It is called lichen sclerosis. And to talk more about this topic, I have Jacqueline with me, who is the founder of the Lost Labia Chronicles. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. Yes. So why don't you start off by, you know, talking a little bit about your health journey, if you're comfortable with that? Of course. Yeah. So um, I am 35 years old now and I started having symptoms or just kind of noticing that something didn't quite seem right in my early twenties. For me, that not seeming right tended to show up um, in a sexual health aspect. So I noticed that sex was kind of uncomfortable for me. So it was just, I wouldn't say pain initially, it was just discomfort, kind of felt like raw and burning during and a bit after. And as the years progressed, this kind of grew in intensity. So it started to be more painful. And then I noticed that I would tear from penetrative sex. And, you know, growing up, you're young, you talk to you, well, not you're young, every, you know, you talk to your friends about sex and no one seemed to ever say sex hurts and no one ever said that they tear from sex. So I found that a little bit unusual and pretty distressing actually. So, you know, I would go to different doctors and I would say, um, I have pain during sex. My vagina hurts. Now that statement is important because we'll come back to that one later. We'll come we'll back about. to that. Okay. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, but I would say, you know, my vagina hurts and sex hurts. And they would, you know, go in, do a little look and say, you look perfectly healthy. Everything is fine. And I would keep getting that from doctors. And they would also say, well, you know, you're very small down there. So maybe your partner is just a little too big for you. And you should try and find someone who is smaller. Um, And then as I kept going to see different doctors, obviously, I was becoming more and more distressed by the situation because the pain was getting worse, but I wasn't really getting anywhere with doctors. I wasn't getting any answers or even just support or like validation, or I hear you, like there was none of that. So I would start getting really stressed when I would go see them. So then they're like, oh, well, the stress, it's the stress that's causing the pain and the issues with sex. So, you know, you just need to like do yoga, which I always thought was funny because I tended to go to my doctor's appointments after being at the yoga studio. So I would like literally be in my yoga gear with my yoga mat, like you know, propped up against their wall with my little yoga bag and like water bottle. And I'm like, you're like, look, I, I, I do the yoga and still tearing. (laughs) I don't think that's the issue here. Um, but that was kind of all that I would get. So a lot of pain in the vulvar, not that, not vagina vulvar area. 
and a lot of tearing. And then it started to feel like this would, this was initially with sex only, but then I started to have issues just in general. So even if I wasn't having any penetrative sex for like a few weeks, it would start to feel like paper cuts on the vulva. So it almost felt like someone was making a bunch of little paper cuts on my vulva and then pouring rubbing alcohol on. And that kind of stinging sensation would linger. And it was just really uncomfortable and really distressing to feel that way, but to know that there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. Like, how can I feel these sensations and everything is okay? I I couldn't wrap my head around that. And you know, my mental health was really struggling because I was in this much pain. I couldn't really walk some days. Uh, sitting was painful. And then the itch came. So chronic kind of vulvar itching, but no discharge, none of the kind of classic things that we associate with the yeast infection. And even when I would like self-treat with yeast infection medicine, it wouldn't help in the slightest. So there was a lot of itch, a lot of tears and fissures and pain with sex. And I'm in, I'm in Toronto, Canada. And, um, I went, I ended up going to like a, an STI kind of sexual health specific clinic. And I went there hoping like full of hope. Like I thought, okay, this is a specialized clinic. I'm not just going to a regular doctor, they're going to have some answers for me, or can at least refer me to someone that could possibly help. And so I went there, I explained everything. They listened to my history, the, the, the usual, you know, the little check. And then they said, you're fine. I don't know what's wrong with you, but I can't help you. So not even a, I can't help you. Here's a referral. Just like, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. So I left there feeling super defeated. And I basically thought, well, okay, then I guess there is nothing wrong with me but I'm just going to have to learn to deal with this for the rest of my life. And it's just going to get worse, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I made an appointment with my general physician and it was completely unrelated to my vulvar issues. Um, I don't even recall what it was, but it was probably my back because my back gives me a lot of grief. And then in passing, as we were talking about my back, I kind of mentioned a couple of my vulvar symptoms, but like super in passing. Cause at this point I was just like, screw it. Like no one knows what's wrong with me. And she was like, what, hold on, hold on. Say, say that again. And so I explained the tearing and the pain and the chronic itch and that this has been going on and been getting progressively worse for almost a decade now. And she said, well, I understand that that doctor told you nothing's wrong, but would you mind if I took a look as your doctor, I would just like to be the one to tell you nothing's wrong. It would just make me feel better to like do an exam. And so I thought, you know, what's one more person looking at me down there? Like, cool. I'm going to go in and she's going to tell me, oh yeah, no, you do look fine. Um, so I go in the room, you know, get my pants off my underwear off and line the little straps and all of that, get ready for her to examine me. And it took her a second. She didn't even get in close. She just, from afar, she was like, oh, you have lichen sclerosis. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry, what? And then, then she started getting a little bit closer and kind of looking at things. And she goes, has your vulva always looked like this? And that's another sentence that really stuck with me for a long time. Um, because in that moment at like, you know, 31 years old, I realized, I, I don't know. I, I've never really looked at myself. Yeah, you're, you're like, look like what, <laughs> right? Like maybe I, 
I don't know. And I was just kind of like, I'm so sorry. Like I've never looked. I I don't, I don't know if it's always looked like this. And she was like, that's okay. That's okay. And she goes, no, this is definitely like in sclerosis. You have both the signs and the symptoms. Um, So she's like, I am going to refer you to a gynecologist and put you on treatment. But that was pretty much a 10 year journey to getting that diagnosis. And I was told by so many doctors that there was nothing wrong. And then my GP, like right away, she just looked and was like, oh yeah. (laughs) Right. That's That's so weird that like none of those other doctors noticed anything at all. Right. And so there's, there's a part of me and, and I don't, I used to blame myself for getting, taking so long to get diagnosed, but I don't blame myself anymore. But one thing I think, and this is where kind of cycling back to that, my vagina hurts is that in addition to never looking at my vulva, I never knew the proper anatomical terms. I kind of used vagina as a catch all for, you know, the vagina and the vulva and kind of like everything down there. So I was coming to them saying that my issue was vaginal when in fact my issue was vulvar. So I think that that might've, you know, caused a little bit of confusion. And when you say there's a vaginal issue, they're going to kind of go in and look at the vagina. They're not going to really take their time to examine the vulvar area. And so like the vagina looked healthy. So they were like, you're fine. And so, you know, I wonder had I used the term vulva, would that have clued them in maybe Would that have kind of had a light bulb moment? Would they have maybe spent more time looking at the vulva? I don't know. That's an interesting thing that you're bringing up. And, you know, I guess it's one of those things that you can't really blame yourself for because they're the doctor. They should be looking at all of those areas. And it kind of makes me think about my experience with IC and, and having difficulty describing where my pain was like, is it in the bladder? Is it in my urethra or is it more on the outside in that vestibular area? And it's mm-hmm. so tough. And so I, I think, you know, we can't blame ourselves for that. It, it really is something that will, I think, hold you up in your healing process. Yeah, I agree. And the, and the truth is, it's not on us. Um, you know, we were failed by a bigger system, which is, you know, one education. Sex ed doesn't really teach us about our parts and about like a whole slew of things that we need to know, but they're not mentioned. And again, like true that, you know, maybe it would have helped had I used the correct anatomical term, but, you know, it's also on the doctor to kind of probe and ask the right questions and to kind of investigate a little more. Um, you know, we can't be expected to know everything. It's kind of on them to like hear certain things and be like, mm-hmm. so does it hurt on the outside or does it hurt on the inside? Okay. Show me where it hurts. Cause if they said, show me, then maybe I could point right. and been like, Oh, that's a vulva, not a vagina. And then I would have been like, Oh, okay. Then true. So it's the vulva that's hurting me. Yeah, no. And, and anyone listening, you know, you could always take initiative with your doctor and actually point during an Mm -hmm. exam, because that could be really helpful for them. And I think sometimes as providers, we get not, what am I trying to say? Like we get stuck in the flow of like the typical questions we ask and it kind of just becomes a routine. And sometimes it, it can be difficult to see things outside of what we typically see, if that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. So yeah, I had a ton of thoughts when you were saying all of that. And so I took notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first one. So you were saying how, you know, they, no one taught us when we're younger about, you know, our anatomy and, you know, the different names for these things. And that's so true. And I was just talking to my friend recently who went to Catholic school and she's like, yeah, they didn't teach us like anything at all about sex or our reproductive organs. And I'm like, how are we, how are we not educating kids on this stuff? Like that is ridiculous and it's very irresponsible. And I think that not to get into the current state of the United States, but with the whole abortion thing. And I just feel like there is such a lack of education at a younger age. And that could and it has help. deep implications for our health later on. And I think that's the most disappointing thing is that this really affects our health mentally yeah. and physically. And yeah. like, this absolutely is something that, that needs to change. Absolutely. And I could definitely relate to you as a kid or teenager when you were having these issues and you are hearing your friends talking about sex or mm-hmm. whatever for me it would be like I was having burning when I peed and I would say oh my, my pee just really burned and they my friends would be like what I'd be like oh okay I guess I won't talk about that again yep. and so it's like yeah once you have an experience like that when you realize this isn't normal it's like okay I'll either you know talk to my parents about it which is super uncomfortable I was going to ask you How did that go? Did you feel comfortable talking to your parents about it? You know, I actually didn't speak to my parents about any of this um, when it was happening. Um, I think I just thought like, I don't think they have the resources to help me if I told them what was going on. Um, And I felt like it was, you know, it's a doctor issue. And I was old enough at that point to go make my own doctor's appointments and Um, My mother had multiple sclerosis growing up, a very progressive form, and she was very, very ill. And so I tried not to kind of burden her with any kind of extra stress or issues unless it was absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, So I never spoke to them about that. But the first thing I did when I got diagnosed, I made a bunch of calls. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was diagnosed, you know, my doctor said, okay, so this is considered to be an autoimmune condition. There can be a genetic component you treat with steroids, here's your prescription and off you go. And she, oh, and she also let me know that there is a slight increased risk of developing vulvar cancer from having LS. That was all the information I was given and oh, it was on okay. my merry Let's way. Oh yeah. in a little fear about developing cancer <laughs> and send you on your way. <laughs> and that was literally it, like right at the end. She was like, oh, right. And there is like an increased risk of you developing vulvar cancer, but you know, it's low. So don't worry about it. And I was like, you know, even if it was, you know, I just like, I totally dissociated for that visit. And it's like, there was no context for that statement. So that really wasn't super helpful. So all I remembered was maybe cancer, autoimmune and genetic. So because I thought, well, there could be a genetic component. The first thing I did was call my sister because I thought, okay, if there's a chance that she has this, I want to at least let her know so that she can, you know, 
be able to catch it early and not have to maybe suffer her 10 years like me. So I kind of let her know about it. And uh, she was super nice and receptive about it. She had already heard of it because she had worked in a medical office at that point. And so she knew patients in the office that had it, um, but she herself didn't, or at least at the time that, you know, I spoke to her, there was nothing. And then my mom had passed away when I was 22. So I never got to kind of, I don't know if she had it or not. I had the second phone call I made was to my dad, who again was just the most wonderfully compassionate person when I, when I told him about it. And, you know, after the crying and all of that, you know, I was like, did mom have this by any chance? Because it, it can be their genetic in some cases. And he was like, you know what? I don't know. She was never formally diagnosed with it, but multiple sclerosis can cause kind of sexual dysfunction issues and stuff like that. So it could have been that some complaints were kind of chalked up to multiple sclerosis, or it could be that, you know, the nerve signals causing pain or itch weren't being received properly. So she just didn't feel anything. And you can also, you can have lichen sclerosis and have no symptoms. So that's another thing. If that wasn't on their radar um, to look at her vulva, she could have just been asymptomatic with lichen sclerosis. So I'll never really know if she had it or not. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't tell them about it. Um, as I was young, I was mostly just talking to friends about sex and I just realized how incredibly different I was. Like I had to plan sex very strategically. Like I couldn't have it too often but I had to like plan it. So ideally I would like have sex and then I needed two to three days to recover, but I couldn't let that recovery go too long because then if I would have sex again, it would be super painful and I would tear all over again. So it's like, I had to be so strategic oh, yeah. about having it. And I was like, I've never heard of somebody strategically having to put in so much thought into when and how they're going to have sex. Yeah, no, I'm smiling and laughing because I can relate to that. And I think a lot of the listeners will as people with IC and pelvic floor dysfunction. I think a lot of us have to plan ahead to avoid yeah. pain. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. Or minimize it, right? Like yeah. a lot of us can't even completely avoid it. It's more about like, can I make this comfortable enough that I can like get through it, which is not really a healthy mindset and not being very, you know, self-compassionate towards yourself. But I think that's how a lot of us can, can think at points. Yeah. And I'm sure that, I don't know if this ha happened to you or anyone that, you know, um, with this condition, but if you are having pain every time you're having sex, it's like, you're not going to want to do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so you have these avoidance tendencies. And then it was, um, you know, when you pointed out the IC and pelvic floor dysfunction. So like lichen sclerosis right now is considered to be an autoimmune disease. Um, it is the single most inflammatory skin condition that you can have of the genital area. So just tons of inflammation. Um, and it causes all of these symptoms and signs and stuff like that. But when you have lichen sclerosis and especially when it goes untreated and things like sex are painful or stuff like this, there's a lot of trauma that starts getting stored in that area. And then you can start to develop, you know, as a kind of secondary thing, you can start to develop different pelvic floor issues like hypertonic pelvic floor because of the, the trauma from all of the pain. So things are really, really connected down there. And just because you have one thing doesn't mean you can't have another. Right. 
Right. And I definitely want to talk more about the symptoms and diagnosis, but first I want to get the whole vaginal versus vulvar thing out. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah. So the vagina is the way that like the most simplistic way to remember the distinction is the vagina is inside and the vulva is outside. So okay. the vulva then would be, you know, the clitoral area, the labia minora, the labia majora, the vestibule, the perineum, all of that. Everything that you can physically see on the outside is the vulva. And then inside is, you know, that vaginal muscular canal that we go going into the body. So, you know, for me, yeah, there was some vaginal kind of component sometimes, but the majority of my pain and the itch was very clearly on the outside. It was very clearly the vulva. So when I say like I was tearing, I would tear most commonly around this six o'clock area, which is around the perineum. And then I would also tear sometimes at the top around the clitoral area. So again, like the tearing and the pain, those were not vaginal issues. Those were vulvar issues. So, right. Right. And I think the most important thing to take away from this, besides what you just said is the importance of looking at that area yourself and getting, you know, I recently, um, not recently, like in the past eight months, um, went to my current IC doctor and he was like, do you want to look at your pelvic floor area, whatever he said, um, right. while I do the exam. And I was like, uh, cool. no, <laughs> that's like my knee jerk reaction. I was like, uh, that's kind of weird. And right. then as he went on, he was explaining things to me. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So they handed me a mirror. And now every time I'm there, I, I watch him as he does things. And I think right. that's really in, important. And then I also ended up going to a dollar store and just getting like a dollar store mirror so mm -hmm. that I could familiarize myself with that area. And I think that's a really important thing as females. And I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't hurt males to do, but especially as females, um, so important. I mean, yeah, I just think anybody should be familiar with their genitals, whether it's a penis or a vulva, the anal area, like anything like that, just everybody should familiarize themselves and, and know their, their bodies, know what they're called, understand the functions and, and know what they look like and know what, know what your normal looks like because vulvas come in all different colors, shapes, and sizes. And so just because, you know, your vulva looks a certain way, that's not necessarily indicative that there's anything wrong, but if you know what you normally look like and there's a change, then you can spot that change, connect with a healthcare provider tell them, Hey, you know, there's this discoloration here or a bump here. This was never here before. Can we take a look at it? Because often like, you know, there are many vulvas that have kind of bumps or, you know, just not discoloration, but just different colored areas. And that might be completely benign. So I think when you know what you look like normally, it really helps in the long run, identify any issues and ideally catch them early because you are checking and you're familiar with what your normal is. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break. Are you new to the IC world? Maybe you are within one year of your diagnosis and are still feeling a little lost. If so, you're going to want to listen up. I decided to create a mini course for people who are looking to learn more about 
the diagnostic process, treatment options for IC, IC subtypes, best questions to ask your practitioner, how understanding pain science can help your IC, and so much more. This mini course is the perfect place to start if you wanna learn more about IC and aren't quite ready to join a program like Road to Remission. The Intro to IC mini course will officially launch on July 25th, but if you join the waitlist, you will receive a special offer on launch day. Click the link in the show notes to get on the waitlist now. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so let's get into lichen sclerosis. What are the signs and the symptoms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, let's start with the symptoms. The symptoms are um, itch, which can be mild and sporadic to chronic and persistent. And when I say itch, think a yeast infection on steroids, essentially. Um, nothing can prepare you or truly convey the depth of this itch. Um, that sounds it, brutal. Yeah, it really is. It causes insomnia in a lot of people because the itch typically is worse at night. I've spoken to many folks with vulvar lichen sclerosis who have um, told me that they have holes in their, their underwear because they're scratching so hard that they've ripped through their underwear. There's blood on their fingers because it's just, it's so like, oh my gosh. And I'm sure the scratching makes it worse, right? It totally does. So then, you know, it can cause it, um, it can cause some bruising um, and some scar tissue buildup. And of course that just makes the itch worse. And it just becomes this itch scratch cycle that becomes really hard to kind of get out of. Um, So itch can be one. Pain is the other and pain can present in a number of ways. So um, it can just feel like generalized vulvar pain, uh, discomfort, burning, stinging. Um, If you experience cuts or fissures, um, and I'll talk about why that kind of happens shortly, but essentially the, the vulvar area can kind of split open and, you know, you'll have little cuts and fissures in the skin and that can be incredibly painful that can sting and that can burn. Um, and then you can have trouble urinating or I'm sure if the, the urine touches those areas. That is oh, going to be like, God, does that burn? burn? Yes. I used to like strategically and awkwardly like hover, but like angle myself to try and like avoid where the fissures were. So I could like shoot the urine away from them and like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I mean, I think, you know, like, again, just something that some people take for granted, like something as simple as maybe going to the bathroom and urinating can be such, you know, uh, an experience where you're like spending, you know, five, 10 minutes in there trying to be so precise and strategic to minimize your discomfort and do all of these things. It's just like, I mean, there was one point where I would try to reduce the amount that I would drink in the day. So I would drink the least amount of water possible because I thought, well, if I can avoid going to the bathroom multiple times and I'll kind of avoid that pain. So no, people with um, IC do that too. So you're, you're not alone in doing that. Right. <laughs> I've never heard of anyone else saying that. So that's, kind Oh of- yeah. No, I think we'll do anything to avoid the thing that causes us pain. So yeah. it's like, yeah, if, if not drinking water means urinating less and having less pain or less frequency, like yeah. People. Will do yeah. It. Yeah. Cause it's, it's tough when you're in that much pain and discomfort and it's amazing what you'll do when you're actually in pain like that. Um, the mm-hmm. things that you'll do. So, yeah. So, 
um, itch and then pain, which is like stinging, burning, localized pain. And then there is pain with sex specifically and tearing during sex. Then you can also get things like blood blisters. And if it's really progressive, you can get kind of like ulcers and sores. Um, there can sometimes be bleeding from the tearing um, again, but it's very clearly vulvar bleeding, not coming out of the vagina. So those are kind of the main symptoms. And then the signs are uh, discoloration, specifically whiteness. And that whiteness can present in a bunch of different ways. So you might find that the overall vulva starts becoming more pale. So whatever your initial color is, and again, this kind of plays into know your normal, all of the signs tie right back to that idea of know your vulva and know your normal. So, you know, my vulva looked kind of the, the labia minora and all of that was pink before, but when I got diagnosed, it was white, like all of that pink tissue had turned white. Sometimes it, it won't, it's not necessarily always the whole vulva. Sometimes there'll be parts of the vulva. Some people have like thickened white plaques or kind of spots, patches on the vulva. And then there can also be this kind of figure eight distribution of whiteness kind of around the vulva and the, the anal area. Um, so the whiteness and the paleness is a big one. Um, and then there's a bunch of anatomical changes that can happen. Um, and these are things that like, whew, no one can prepare you for. Um, so, uh, with the anatomical changes, you can have fusing, which is when different parts of your vulva will start to stick together. And then it's kind of like this spectrum. So fusing is kind of the beginning where things start to stick a bit. And then the end result, if this keeps progressing and you're not treating is areas can completely resorb. So for me, for example, um, I've lost the majority of my labia minora. They're not fused anymore. They've completely resorbed. So when it resorbs, it's kind of like the body part kind of pulls back and shrinks back into itself and then just resorbs into the surrounding area. So like normally there's a distinction between your labia minora and your labia majora, right? Like you can touch and see that there are two discernible separate parts. But with me, the labia minora is completely flush with the labia majora. So like if you run your finger, it is just like it's one thing. You literally, the only reason you can tell that there used to be some labia minora is that there's a bit of a color difference and that is it. Um, you can also have fusing around the clitoral area. So the hood of the clitoris can fuse to the glands clitoris and this can be partial or complete. And this kind of fusing can lead to a number of functional issues such as loss of sensation or reduced clitoral sensation, as well as completely losing, you know, all sensation with when you have complete fusing. Um, some people say they lose all function, like all sensation down there. So no more orgasms or arousal or anything like that. So that can cause a lot of issues. Fusing can also happen around the entrance of the vagina. Um, so you'll get a lot of scar tissue build up there, which of course will narrow the vagina and make it harder for things to go in, um, be that a tampon, a speculum, a penis, a toy, et cetera. And then finally, you can have fusing around the urethra. So not only can it be difficult to urinate because it stings if you have fissures around that area, but if you have partial fusing over the urethra, then you're going to start to notice that, you know, you don't really have that one stream of urine. It's kind of spraying all over the place. And 
this is definitely, you know, something that you want to get looked into and quickly because we don't want that fusing to be complete because then they're going to have to do something more invasive to kind of open that up so that you can urinate again. Um, but yeah, so there's all of these anatomical changes that can happen uh, with regards to the texture, the look and the color of your skin. And so, again, I think that's why it's really important to know what your normal is and to do you know, a once a month vulva check, because, you know, if you start seeing like, oh yeah, I've always been pink or I've always been brown. And now my vulva is paler or white or ashy, or I have this like white plaque that I can't rub off. Then, you know, something has changed and you bring that to your doctor's attention. And it's also important because you can be asymptomatic and have lichen sclerosis. So all of those awful symptoms that I listed before, you don't necessarily have to have all of those or any of them. So some people go for their routine gynecological checkup and they're just there like, you know, all right, do the, do the pap smear, do the regular stuff chatting away. And then the doctor, you know, the gynecologist says, oh, um, you have lichen sclerosis and that completely catches them off guard because they weren't having any issues down there. There was no pain. There was no itch. There was no difficulty with sex, no difficulty with going to the bathroom. And they're like, what do you mean? But then if you show them the vulva, it's completely white or it's, you know, covered in white thick patches. And so it's like, you know, this is why it's also important to, to do those checks because just because you don't have symptoms, it's not necessarily that you're okay. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the main signs and symptoms and why it's so important to, do a vulva check. Okay. And then what does the diagnostic process look like? Mm -hmm. So there are two main ways that lichen sclerosis can be diagnosed. So one is clinical examination and the other is via a vulvar biopsy. So clinical examination um, includes taking both signs and symptoms. So first they'll talk to the patient and the patient will tell them about their symptoms if those symptoms all match with lichen sclerosis, it's like, okay, maybe there could be. Then they're gonna do a clinical examination where they're gonna look at your vulva and examine it under that, you know, I don't know what it's called. They put that big binocular thing looking <laughs> yeah. on their face. I don't know, but they can see really, you know, they get a good clean look at the skin. And if they see active signs of disease, which would be that, you know, the whiteness, fusing, scarring, those kind of changes that's indicative of, active lichen sclerosis, and you have the signs, uh, the symptoms of lichen sclerosis. And if that doctor is very familiar with lichen sclerosis and extremely confident in their diagnosis, then they might forego a biopsy and just give you a clinical diagnosis. Then um, if it's not a clinical examination, it's a vulvar biopsy. This is the gold standard and the preferred um, method for diagnosis, at least for most vulvovaginal specialists. And this is just to have 100% confidence in the diagnosis. Um, so they might want a diagnosis, um, they might want a biopsy, just if they want that 100% confirmation for the patient. They might also want that biopsy to rule out other lichenoid kind of diseases. So, you know, lichen planus, lichen simplex chronicus, or anything else. And then also because lichen sclerosis does carry that increased risk of vulvar cancer, if they suspect any, or they see any signs of potential malignancy of vulvar cancer, they might also do the biopsy to kind of, you know, rule that out or diagnose if they think that's the case. So 
the vulvar biopsy is, um, it's typically a punch biopsy, um, which is where they take, well, first, it really depends. There's two kind of ways that you can do this. There's the ideal way and the non-ideal way. So ideally, what they would do, they would put a topical numbing cream on the vulva first, let that sink in. Then they would inject you with a local anesthetic. And then they take this kind of round circular metal instrument to remove a portion of your vulva. And it's kind of, it looks like a so a hole puncher. It looks like a hole puncher. I'm sorry to everyone that's listening. It's not a pleasant thought to think of someone hole punching your vulva, but that's kind of what they're doing. They're taking a really round, approximately four millimeter sample of the vulva of the vulvar skin. And then they're going to send that to an expert pathologist. Ideally, they're going to give them notes such as suspected lichen sclerosis, here are the symptoms or unclear if, you know, lichen simplex chronicus or lichen sclerosis, you know, they'll give the pathologist notes in context, and then the pathologist will analyze the sample to look for certain indicators that would show that, you know, there is lichen sclerosis, and then they would give you that diagnosis. Now, the non-ideal way and the way that most people that I've spoken to get their biopsies is they skip that topical numbing cream. So they go directly in with the needle, which is everybody's opinion, so much more painful than the biopsy itself. Everybody says the needle is by far and large the worst. Why would they do it that way? I I have no idea. I really don't know. Um, But it is what many doctors do. Now, for anyone listening, if you have a vulvar biopsy scheduled, know that you are allowed to request that they put a topical numbing cream on. So if you're listening, request that topical numbing cream, ideally in advance. If you live in Canada, you can even get something like Emla over the counter um, and kind of bring that in so that they can numb it. But definitely have that conversation with your doctor because the, the injection can be incredibly painful. Wow. Okay. That that does not sound fun. And it reminds me of a cystoscopy for people with IC and how a lot of doctors will do it under anesthesia and some will just do it in office with like nothing. And it's like, how, how are we all so different in what we're doing? And, you know, it, it just blows my mind. I can talk about that forever, but I wanted to ask, what is the best type of doctor to go to for this whole process? Mm -hmm. So the best doctor to go to really, it's not a cop-out answer, but you know, is the, the doctor that knows about lichen sclerosis. So that could be a gynecologist or a dermatologist. Those are probably the two doctors that you would see the most commonly because Lichen sclerosis kind of sits at the intersection of gynecology and dermatology. Dermatology, because it's a skin disease that affects the skin and gynecology because it's affecting the vulvar skin. So we've got a kind of mishmash of those those two. So either is fine, but what's more important is finding a doctor that is knowledgeable about lichen sclerosis, because there are a surprising amount of gynecologists that have little to no you know, knowledge about lichen sclerosis and same for dermatologists. So what I recommend usually is that if you suspect lichen sclerosis or really any kind of vulvovaginal kind of issues is vet your doctor beforehand. So call the office and say things like, 
do you have any patients here with lichen sclerosis? Does the doctor, you know, actively treat lichen sclerosis? What is their, you know, kind of get a feel for, do they even know what this is? Do they have patients? Is it with lichen sclerosis? What's their success rate? You know, stuff like that, because you don't want to waste your time. I was just going to say that doesn't know what they're doing. No, it's the same thing with IC. Not all urologists know about the condition or feel comfortable treating it. And a lot of them have crazy long wait lists and you don't want to show up three months later to an appointment you've been waiting for to have them be like, Oh, I really don't know what that is or feel comfortable. Or they'll kind of pretend like they know what they're doing, but they really don't. And mm-hmm. so it sounds like that's the case for like a sclerosis as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So gynecologist, dermatologist, vet them and make sure that they do have some knowledge of lichen sclerosis and have, you know, patients with lichen sclerosis. And then like the not as common ones, some GPs or like primary care physicians are actually quite knowledgeable and kind of like vulval vaginal condition. So sometimes like my, my gynecologist, um, my, uh, general practitioner was the one that diagnosed me. Um, and then that got confirmed by a gynecologist, but so she actually had a good amount of knowledge. So sometimes your, your PCP or your GP can actually make that diagnosis. Um, and then urogynecologists as well can sometimes make that diagnosis as well. You'd probably be going to a urogynecologist more if you notice that there's like a urinary kind of component to what you think is happening. So maybe you do have some partial fusing over the urethra and there's like an issue voiding. And if that's the case, then you might kind of go to a urogynecologist. But again, like definitely with the urogynecologist, make sure that they know what lichen sclerosis is because I've heard a lot of stories of people going to urogynecologists and they have no idea what they are talking about. Right, right. And then what does the treatment look like? Yeah, so treatment, there's a there's a few treatments. Um, the gold standard is topical corticosteroids. Uh, the most common one that people kind of hear floating around is clebatazole. That's what I use. Um, and then there's other ones like betamethasone and mometasone and, and all of these others. And then steroids are kind of classed by their potency. So, you know, you might be on a lower potency steroid, but typically they're going to put you on some kind of a topical steroid that you're going to be putting on the vulva. Um, and that is the first line of treatment because it's the one that has the most substantial research behind it. And it's the only treatment that's been shown to really reduce the inflammation that causes lichen sclerosis, uh, slow the progression of the disease and reduce the likelihood of developing vulvar cancer. So that's kind of why it's the go-to in the medical field. The second line treatment is something called topical calcineurin inhibitors. So they work very similarly to the steroids, um, but they're not actually a steroid. So these are things like pimacrolimus and tacrolimus. The only downside to these, and the reason they're not prescribed as frequently as steroids is that they can initially cause a lot of burning and stinging when applied to the vulva. And that really discourages patients from using it. So they tend to go more with the steroids Um, There was a study that kind of assessed, you know, like compared steroids to calcineurin inhibitors in terms of, you know, their ability to help with symptoms, reduce signs, um, reduce, you know, uh, you know, get the disease under control, get the patient into remission, all of that. And calcineurin inhibitors were the closest in terms of steroids. Um, 
they checked all of those boxes that were just like a little bit less, you know, effective than the steroids at reducing the inflammation, but still pretty substantial results. So that's why it's kind of second line. And then you have more experimental approaches, and those can be things like CO2 fractional laser, uh, platelet-rich plasma, and phototherapy. Thing is, is that there's just, we need a lot more research on that. And so they're considered kind of experimental because they don't have nearly the amount of data behind them as calcineurin inhibitors and topical corticosteroids. Now, I will say that of the studies that I've read, most patients do say that they noticed a reduction in their symptoms when they got like platelet-rich plasma or the laser. Um, but the studies that we do have have shown that they had no effect in reducing the inflammation. Um, and so the caution there is that it may help the symptoms, but it's at this point, it doesn't seem like it's as good as actually treating the disease. And that's incredibly important because yes, we want to manage our symptoms, but we also really want to control the disease because lichen sclerosis is a progressive disease. And if left untreated, it can potentially develop into vulvar cancer, but even if it doesn't, it can still progress and you could lose more parts of your anatomy and other things can kind of change and shift. So we really want to make sure that we're treating the inflammation and also, you know, working to manage those symptoms and steroids do both. So again, that's why they're kind of the first line treatment, but there are these other experimental treatments that folks can kind of play with if for some reason they don't want to use steroids or if their body doesn't tolerate steroids. So there is a small section of people that actually can't, their bodies just can't tolerate it, whether it's an allergic reaction or it's just too strong for them. So they have to kind of move out and play in that experimental um, place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. So that, yeah, that definitely is a lot of really great information. And if anybody wants to learn more about lichen sclerosis, would you recommend them come to your website? Um, we can link it in the show notes, but is there anywhere else that they can get resources or, or get asked questions about this? Yeah, of course. So um, people can also always follow me on Instagram. I'm at the lost labia chronicles. Actually, that's my handle on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, kind of everywhere. That's just, it's not a very common name, right? The Lost Labia Chronicles. Right. Where did that name come from? Yeah. So um, I lost the majority of my labia to lichen sclerosis. Oh, and it. so at first that was incredibly distressing for me. And it really caused a lot of body dysmorphia and self-disgust and self-hate. And I worked very hard with a sex therapist to work through those issues and I'm now in a place where I love my vulva, you know, despite the fact that I've lost so much of it to the disease, I still, I love her now. And so it was just a kind of, you know, play on words like the lost labia chronicles. Cause originally I was like, I'm just going to blog about my journey with LS. And then it kind of grew and expanded. And now I've just created this massive content hub for lichen sclerosis information. So, yeah. So People can find me there and then you can DM me there and I'll always answer DMs. You can also email me at Jacqueline at lostlabia.com. And then you can see my website, which is lostlabia.com. And there I have a ton of resources. So I have a, a free lichen sclerosis ebook, which basically walks you through all the fundamental things that you need to know when you're first diagnosed. So I go through the different treatment options in much more detail. 
how you're diagnosed. I go through complementary things as well, because, you know, it's one thing to treat, but there's other important components like, you know, um, uh, nutrition and lifestyle, pelvic floor, physical therapy, sex therapy. There's just all these other adjunct things that we can kind of add on to really create a, a good holistic plan for managing our lichen sclerosis. I also talk, I have a chapter about, you know, how to find a treatment plan that's right for you because, you know, it's more to it than just, oh, they gave me steroids. I'm going to take steroids. Um, and then the third chapter is all about the importance of support and how and where to find support. So that's free and you can get that on my website. I also have on my website, a whole page that's just like in sclerosis resources. So resources for education and resources for support groups. So I list just a bunch of support groups out there, um, different kind of, you know, I have a couple like sex therapists in there and sex educators, um, just a bunch of resources. So that can all be found on my site. And then anything else that you're looking for, my YouTube channel, uh, just reach out to me. I'll, I will I will move you in the appropriate direction. Yeah, I love it. You're doing all the things and trying to spread awareness. So that's fantastic. I'll link all of that in the show notes. And just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting with me. Yeah, of course. It's It's been a pleasure. I mean, you know, IC and LS are both very you know, they're not spoken about enough and there's a lot more research needed. So the more that we can talk about this and raise awareness, the better. So thank you so much for, for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to make sure you're subscribed and following along. If you enjoyed this episode specifically, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell me exactly what you enjoyed about the episode. For more content, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Kali K Nutrition.